turn back over to Hebrews chapter 8. <laughs> Amen. I think that's the first time that's happened. <laughs> this is where I was ministering from last night. And I just want to go over a couple of verses and then I'm going to go further into this. But it kind of summarized in Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 13. And it's been talking about that there was a new covenant with new commandments and that the first covenant now was outdated. The old covenant is not how we are supposed to relate to the Lord. Last night, I tried to make a major point that the way David prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me, created me a clean heart. And all of these things is wrong. New Testament believers should not be praying that way because God has promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. He's always with us. You don't have to beg God to come and be with you. He's always with you. And so we went through all of this and talked about how we have a new covenant. And this summarizes it in Hebrews 8, 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so the old covenant, the old way of God dealing with mankind where he held our sins against us has been taken away and God has a new covenant. That is radical. You know, that'll get me kicked out of nearly any church. There's very few churches that will allow you to say this. I mean, it's just heresy. That's the reason we have to come rent a building like this (laughs) is because there's very few churches that'll let me in to preach these things. And yet this is exactly what it says. In that he says, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, the old covenant is ready to vanish away. And put this together with John chapter 13 and verse 34. And this talks about not only do we have a new covenant, but we have a new commandment. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples in that if you have love one to another. And I also use Matthew chapter 22 and Romans chapter 13 that talked about that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the greatest commandment of all. Everything else hinges upon us loving God. And so the New Testament has replaced the Old Testament. The New Covenant has replaced the Old Covenant. And we now have a new commandment to love God and to love people that has replaced the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments. Not saying that there's anything wrong with the Ten Commandments. They still are the right thing to do. They are the revelation of God. And all of those things are true, but we don't live by it. And one of the points that I made last night at the very end of the session was talking about like the commandment to honor your father and mother. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, I believe it was. And if you don't honor them, Exodus chapter 21, verses 15 and 17 says you are to kill a child that doesn't honor their parents. If you smite your parent or if you curse your parent, you kill that child. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says if the child is stubborn and rebellious. I had a parent bring a child up this morning and say they're rebellious. If we were still living under the old covenant, we should kill them. And yet there's Christians that just want to hold on to this. No, we've got to still do all of these things. Well, you know, people who say that don't understand what they're saying. 
Look at this passage over in the book of Galatians chapter 3. This says that exact same thing. Galatians chapter 3. In verse 10, it says, for as many as are of the works of the law, this is talking about if you are trying to please God and appease God by keeping all of the commands of the law, that's what it's talking about. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You know, this is a minor point. Really, it's a major point that people just conveniently forget. They say, I believe you've got to live by the 10 commandments. I believe you've got to be holy. I've got to believe you've got to do all of these things before God will move in your life. Oh, really? Well, what do you do with this verse? It's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, where it says, cursed are you if you don't confirm every single thing that is in the law. James chapter two, verse 10 summarizes it in the New Testament by saying it this way. If you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you become guilty of everything. You know, I have lived a relative holy life compared to most people. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never tasted booze. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. I know some of you are thinking coffee. (laughs) I'm not saying coffee's comparable to booze. You got a scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. Says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. Amen. (laughs) I'm just saying I've lived a separated life. I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought about. And yet, did you know the Bible says if I keep everything and only miss it in one point, I become guilty of all. I am guilty of murder, adultery, homosexuality, lying, stealing. Even though I haven't done those actions, I'm guilty of them because I have been selfish and I haven't put God first and I haven't loved my brother the way that I should and all of the other things. I know that most people don't think that way, but that's what the Bible says. And again, this is saying here in Galatians chapter three, verse 10, it says, as many of you as who want to live under the law, He says, it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And people just conveniently miss this point and think, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing better than this. And that leads, see, to comparison. That's when they start saying, well, I'm better than this publican over here. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. And we begin to start comparing ourselves among ourselves. People who believe that God demands you live holy and do these things before he will answer your prayers. They're always people that compare themselves with others and are very judgmental and condemning of other people. But when you understand that you don't deserve it, You don't deserve the things of God. Well then, and if you receive it by mercy, then you know what? It makes you merciful to other people, even people who maybe haven't done as well as you have done. But you realize that God didn't give you justice. He gave you mercy. Amen. You don't need justice. 
Some of you think, oh yes, I do. Again, you're comparing yourself with other people and you're looking, feeling very good about it. But you know that if you compare yourself to Jesus, we've all come short of that standard and you just need to cry out to God for mercy. And see, the Old Testament law basically said, you do this and this and this, and then I'll do this. And so it was a barter system. You live holy and you keep this law and this law and this law, and then God does this. And sad to say, most Christians are still living with that mentality today. But that is not for us. We have a new covenant where it is all based on what Jesus did for us. And you access everything by what Jesus did. You just put faith in him and you have it counted unto you for righteousness. Look over in Romans chapter eight at a passage of scripture that many people quote, but very seldom do we really live by this. There is therefore now, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You know, some people take the phrase there at the end of the first verse and basically just negate the whole point that he's making. And they say, because it says who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, this is talking about you've got to be holy. And if you aren't holy, well, then there is condemnation to you. That's not what this is saying. Walking after the flesh and after the spirit is just talking. If you go into this chapter, it's talking about that if you are walking in the new covenant, if you are standing on the New Testament realities of who you are in Christ, instead of standing in your own self-righteousness, there is no condemnation to you. This is not saying that you've got to be holy and that your holiness is tied directly to your performance. The first part of that verse says that there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And the word no there is an absolute negative. It means zilch, zero, nada, absolutely none. No condemnation. And condemnation is a religious word that doesn't relate to most people. But here's my little layman's definition Condemnation is just that feeling of unworthiness. It makes you unfit for use. You know, if you condemn a house, what that means is that that house cannot be inhabited. It's unfit to be occupied. It's condemned. And likewise, when you feel condemned is when you just feel like that, God, how could you ever use me? How could you answer my prayer? You know, there's many of you that you, you've heard me talk about that God has done miracles for me and my son was raised from the dead and miracles have happened and you come and you think that God will flow through me. You believe that God can do miracles and if I will pray for you, you can be healed, but you don't believe it'll happen for you because you are condemned. You may not have put those two things together and connected the dots, but that's what it really amounts to. You know, this is a Friday morning and you're out here at a venue listening to me. You are either a fanatic or you were drug here by a fanatic. <laughs> you are the people who, you aren't your nod to God crowd that just shows up on Sunday morning. You guys are seeking after God. You believe in the supernatural power of God. You believe in miracles. And when I tell you about we've seen miracles and God does things, most of you, amen, man, you're right there with me. You, you believe it. If somebody was to fall over dead here, you know, we just had a guy last month died during our, uh, Bible college in Colorado Springs. He died and the class just got around him and prayed for him and raised him from the dead. 
and he was just at our campus days. If any of you saw our campus days on uh, TV, I had some people tell me that they watched that. Uh, He was there at the meetings and he was up praying for people and ministering to people, raised from the dead just a few days ago. I talk about that and people say, hey man, I believe that stuff happens. And if somebody was to die right here, and if I said, how many of you believe God could raise him from the dead? Well, most of you would be right there with me. You'd gather around, you'd want to see it. See, you believe in those things. You're the fanatics. But you know where I could lose most of you? I say, all right, if you believe it, you come pray for him. Now think about this. You don't doubt that God can do it. You don't doubt that it happens today. You believe in all of this power, but then when I say you pray for him, all of a sudden your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. What happened? What changed? Did God change? You know what the difference is? You, most people live with a sense of condemnation, a sense of unworthiness. You don't doubt God's ability. What you doubt is God's willingness to use his ability on your behalf because you know that you haven't done everything that you should. You knew you should have been praying more. You should have been studying the word and doing all of this. And most of us believe God is giving us what we deserve, that he moves in our life proportional to our goodness. That is an Old Testament mentality and that is the very thing that's keeping you at arm's length from God. It's not God who has pushed you, pushed you away. It's you that pushes God away because you think, oh God, I know I'm not worthy. And you can't believe that God would move through you. And that is what the Old Testament law did. But for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, there is absolutely zero, not a zilch, no condemnation for those of us who will access God by the spirit instead of trying to get it through your own performance, the flesh. If you were to stand in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. A scripture that I'll be using more as we go through this series this week is Hebrews chapter 10, verse two. And it says that you should have no more conscience of sin. You should not even have a sin consciousness. You shouldn't even be aware of sin. And yet the average Christian is constantly aware of sin, constantly doing an inventory and constantly measuring God. Am I worthy? God, would you accept me? Have I done enough? We live in sin consciousness, and that is a product of the Old Testament law. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, the by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law points, it focuses your attention on every imperfection and every uh, fallacy in you. It's similar to when we raise children. If you just nitpick at children, and every time they do something wrong, that's wrong. You didn't say this right. You didn't do that right. And if all you do is point out everything wrong that they do, did you know that that kid will become either an overachiever thinking they've got to be perfect to earn people's uh, approval or they will become rebellious just thinking I can never live up to this standard. Therefore, I reject them all. And we don't do that with our children. We shouldn't do that with our children. Well, in a sense, that's what the law does. That's what religion has been doing. And it just makes us so condemned and unworthy. I've heard a statistic before that I assume is correct because I know a lot of people who live this way, but I've heard a statistic that 70% of all spirit filled Christians don't even go to church. 
I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But if I did ask you to raise your hand, I bet you there would be hundreds of spirit-filled Christians in here who love God, who don't go to church because you're just tired of being beat up, tired of being condemned, tired of being told that you got to do all of this stuff and you're just tired of it. That's not the way it should be. There are good churches and it's worth the effort to find one. But I'm saying that we have a lot of people today that are just burned out on religion. They're tired of playing the games. And you know what? It's not the new covenant. The new covenant isn't like that. It's the religious system that we have operating in this country. It's what killed Jesus. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. If you will quit trusting in your own flesh and your own holiness and instead depend upon who you are in Christ Jesus, there is absolutely no condemnation to you. And then it says in the next verse, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? It's the law that when you sin, you get death. It's the law that when you sin, instead of blessing, you don't get the good. You don't get your prayers answered. You don't get healed. You don't get prospered. Instead, you get cursed. God's against you. God's not going to answer your prayer. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have been born again, you are set free from reaping what you've sown. You are set free from this law of sin and death. You don't get what you deserve. You get what Jesus deserves. Some of you are thinking, that just doesn't work that way. There still is a law of sin and death. It's like gravity. Gravity still exists when you're flying in an airplane. When you fly, that doesn't mean that gravity ceased to work. It's still there. You're just applying this greater law of aerodynamics, thrust and lift. And because of it, you're able to fly. But gravity is still there. And if you get outside of that plane, you will sink. And if you step outside of Christ and if you quit trusting in Jesus and what he has done, and if you start relating to God based on your own goodness, there is still a law of sin and death. There is still a law of reaping what you sow. And you know what? You will sink. You will have Satan come against you. I'm not denying that there are consequences to actions, but I am saying that if you're in Christ and if you are truly trusting him, God has set you free from reaping what you deserve. Uh, sowed and getting what you deserve and all of these consequences. And instead you'll have mercy instead of judgment. Again, this is contrary to our religious message today because they say, no, sir, you get exactly what you deserve and you've got to earn it and you've got to do all of these things or God won't answer your prayer. That's not what, that's not the truth of the word of God. And it goes on to say in the next verse, here's the reason that we have been made free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. There was nothing wrong with the law. There was something wrong with us. None of us could ever keep the law. And so here's the reason that it wouldn't work. It was because the law was weak through our flesh. We couldn't keep it. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh of his son. God condemned his son. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. I believe it's verse two. 
And he quoted that verse, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And the next verse explains why God forsook him. Because it says, but thou art holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. You know why God the Father forsook his son, Jesus? Because Jesus became sin for us. He became sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just take a principle of sin. He didn't taste just a little bit of sin. Jesus became sin through and through sin entered into Jesus. Every act of homosexuality, lesbianism, murder, lying, stealing, every perversion, every wicked thing that the human race has ever done, all of that sin entered into Jesus and he became sin. And because of it, his father forsook him because that's what the judgment on sin was. His father forsook Jesus. He became sin and his father turned away from him so that he would never have to turn away from you. He put all of that sin upon Jesus. And Jesus bore that sin and suffered for us the judgment that we should suffer. And because of this, you should not be having condemnation over your sin. You shouldn't be feeling separated from God because Jesus has totally reconciled us unto him. It goes on to say in the next verse, Romans chapter eight, verse four, here's the, here's the benefit of God condemning sin in the flesh of his son that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The righteousness of the law. What this is talking about is holiness. Holiness is now perfected in me. I am righteous and truly holy. Not many people like that one. There's people look at me and think, oh, I could find some faults if I looked in you. But see, the problem is you're looking on the outside. The Bible says in John chapter four, verse 24, that God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God relates to you spirit to spirit. He doesn't relate to you based on your outside, how you look. That's the reason that color doesn't matter to God. He looks on your heart. That's the reason it doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. It doesn't matter if you're pretty or ugly. It doesn't matter if you're dressed fancy or anything else. God is looking at your heart. And when you get born again, God changes your heart. God looks at you in the heart. And Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 says, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Your spirit is righteous and truly holy. According to this verse that you, the righteousness of the law is now fulfilled in you. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And people think, well, that's only if you're doing everything right. No, this is talking about walking after the spirit is talking about if you are standing in what Christ has done for you. If you are in this new creation. If you are relating to God through your born again spirit, you are in the spirit. If you are trying to earn God's favor by your goodness and thinking I've got to do everything so that God will be pleased with me, then you are in the flesh. Some people think, well, in the flesh is talking about sinful. No, you could have USDA choice flesh. You could have good flesh, but if you are in the flesh, you aren't going to please God. 
You can have religious flesh like mine that I haven't done most of the things that many of you have done. And yet nobody is ever going to be justified by your own effort and by your own goodness. It doesn't matter if it's good flesh or bad flesh. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever got sent to hell? Amen. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's just talking about for those who are trusting in Jesus and what he has done. Or another way of saying it in the context of what I'm talking about is those who are now in the new covenant and basing their relationship with God on what Jesus has done and not their own performance and their own holiness. Those people have the righteousness of the law fulfilled in them. I'm as righteous as you can get in your spirit. Amen. I know some of this is messing with your brain. I go into these churches and I hear people praying, oh God, just make me righteous. And I think, why don't you get saved? (laughs) Because the moment you get saved, you are created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4, 24. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, I believe it is, or 31, that Jesus has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is my righteousness. And yet some people will quote from Isaiah chapter 64, I believe it is, where it says all of our righteousness is this filthy rags and they'll think I'm just unworthy and I'm an old worm. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, but I'm so unrighteous. And we, we've been taught that that's a godly attitude. That's talking about your flesh in yourself. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. But if you've been born again, Jesus is now your righteousness. And for you to say your righteousness is like a filthy rag is calling Jesus a filthy rag. We are under a new covenant and the righteousness of the law has been fulfilled in us who are not trusting in ourself and our performance, but instead are trusting in who we are in Christ, what Jesus has done for us. You are as righteous and holy and pure as you can get in your spirit. And yet most Christians don't know this. They don't understand the new covenant. And so they're saying, oh God, make me righteous. Oh God, I promise you that I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to pay my tithes. I'm going to do this and this and this. And now will you heal me? Bartering with God based on the flesh that's in the flesh. And you cannot please God. You've got to get to where you start putting your faith in what Jesus did for you. He was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. He was condemned so that you would never be condemned. You do not have to have any sense of unworthiness and unrighteousness. God has set us free. The war is over. He placed all of his wrath upon his son, the Lord Jesus. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17 is a powerful verse. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I'm going to skip through this because I could preach on this for a week. And I want to get to some other verses, but man, you need to meditate on this. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. 
old things are passed away. It didn't say old things are passing away. Old things are going to eventually pass away. It's already happened. In your spirit, the transformation is complete. You don't need a new spirit. You don't need to get the word down into your spirit. You don't need to educate your spirit. Your spirit has the mind of Christ and knows all things. First John chapter two, verse 20. Your spirit's perfect. It's your head that's the problem. It's this little peanut brain. We need to renew our mind with the word of God. And then that'll be two against three, two against one. Your spirit and your soul get into agreement. If you renew your mind, then your body just has to respond and it will be holy and it will act right, but it'll be a byproduct, not the way to relationship with God. And so it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who hath, past tense, reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to make friendly or to bring into harmony. Like when you take a guitar and you tune the strings together, you reconcile them to each other. You take a bank statement and here's your record of what you've got. Here's the bank's record and you reconcile the statements to where they come into harmony. They say the same thing. This is saying that you have already been reconciled unto God. You've been brought back into friendship, into harmony with God. God is not mad at you. God's not upset with how sorry you are. I'm not saying you aren't sorry. I'm just saying that God's not upset about it. God looks at you in the spirit and he sees you in the spirit as being completely righteous and holy. And the problem is you look in the mirror and you think, man, this is holy. And you see zits and gray hairs and bulges and ugly and different things. And you think this is good. No, God's looking on the inside. If you worship God, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. God's looking at you in the spirit, man. And in the spirit, you were created in righteousness and true holiness. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. First John chapter four, verse 17. You're holy and you're pure in your spirit, but you're looking on the outside and you can't see it. And so you wonder about how could God love me? And then you'll search your soul. You'll search your mind and your emotions. And you know, you hadn't been thinking right. You haven't been encouraged. You've been discouraged in all of these things. And you think that that's the way that God looks at you. God looks at you in the spirit. And because of that, you have already been reconciled. You are in harmony. You are in tune with God in your spirit. Boy, that's powerful. I'm trying with everything I've got not to teach on spirit, soul, and body, but it's... That's what changed my life when I found out who I was in the spirit. I'm trying to stay focused on the new covenant and the old covenant, but man, it all has to do with your spirit. It's only because you're a new person in the spirit that you can be exempted from the Old Testament law. And now you relate to God totally based on who you are in the spirit, your faith in Jesus. And God is not holding your sins and iniquities against you. He's not imputing sin unto you. So it goes on to say in the next verse, to wit, that is to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. How is it that God reconciled us, made us friendly, brought us back into harmony with him? It was because he didn't impute our sins unto us. 
Let me just say that this is the difference between the true gospel and religion. Religion will always impute your sins unto you, hold sins against you. True gospel, true Christianity, your sins have already been imputed to Jesus. And he will not impute them to you. The word impute is an accounting term and it means to put on the books or to, you know, like record. Used to, you'd go in and you'd tell a a clerk, you know, at the store, say, just put that on my tab. And they kept a tab. And then at a, you know, a certain time at the end of the month or whatever, they would impute this unto you. They would send you a statement saying you owe so much for groceries or whatever. That's what the word impute is talking about. The, what we would compare this to today, this is comparable to a credit card. And you take a credit card and when you give a credit card to a, a person at a business, did you know that they did not charge you for that? You haven't paid for it just because you gave them your credit card. All that credit card did was give them your information so that they can impute it unto you. And if you don't believe that, well, then when your statement comes, when your credit card statement comes, don't pay it and say, hey, I already gave them my credit card. I've already paid for this. I'm not paying for it again. Do that and see how that goes over with your credit card company. (laughs) When you give them a credit card, you did not pay for it. What you did was give them the information so they could impute this to you, so that they could hold it against you, so that they could send you a bill and tell you how much you owe. And you have to pay that bill later when it comes. And so this word impute, this is what it's talking about, that the reason God was able to make us friendly with him again is because he did not impute or even record your sins against you. He instead imputed them unto his son. It would be like if I was going to pay for something and I started to give my credit card and Jesus just walks up and pulls my hand back and says, here, put that on mine. Impute that to me. And you know, you might think, but this isn't fair. This is something I was getting. You don't need this. This is something I was buying for myself. And he says, no, I want to pay for it. And so he pays for it. And if he goes ahead and gives them his information, and if they impute that to him, then it would be foolish on my part to think, well, I still ought to do something. After all, I'm the one that got this thing. And so I'm going to at least pay some of it. Let me at least give 10%. Let me give 15 or 20% because after all, I'm the one that got the flat screen TV. I'm the one that's using it. And Jesus is paying for it. This doesn't seem right. You'd be crazy to do that. If Jesus had it imputed to his account, you shouldn't even have anything. If they send you a bill and say, well, somebody else is paying, but you know what? You've got to pay some charge because you're the one that got the good. So we're going to charge you 5% uh, service fee. I guarantee you, you'd be smart to complain, to say, I refuse to do this. The other person's already had it imputed unto them. See, we understand that business realm better than we understand the spiritual realm. But Jesus did not impute sin unto you. God the Father didn't. Instead, he imputed it to his son. Skip on down. I'm going to come back, but look in verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God imputed sin unto Jesus so that it would not be imputed unto you. If God held sin against you, 
then he would be unjust to Jesus or he would be charging double. He would be making Jesus pay for your sin. Plus you have to pay for your sin. That's unequitable. That's double jeopardy. Jesus paid for all of your sins so that there should not even be a consciousness of sin in you. Second, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse two, you, there should be no more conscience of sin. And the scripture we've already read in Romans chapter eight, verse four, now the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in your born again spirit. You are created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4, 24, your spirit is righteous and holy and pure and all of the ungodliness and the sin and the failure in our flesh was imputed unto Jesus. God isn't even holding it against you. This is one of the major, if not the major difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant imputed sin unto you. It made you guilty. It made you condemned. The source of condemnation is the law. But in the New Testament, all of our sin was placed upon Jesus and he is not imputing sin unto us. And sad to say, the vast majority of religion today is imputing sin to you and telling you that the reason God won't answer your prayers because you haven't done this and you hadn't done this and done this and God is holding it against you. And until you straighten up, until you change this behavior, God won't bless you. God won't honor you. You got to do this in order to get God to do this. That is wrong. That is not the new covenant. That's the old covenant mentality. And we've been changed from that. We've got a new covenant with new commands. Man, those are radical, radical statements. So go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, be ye reconciled, we uh, pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God gave us, ministers, this message of reconciliation. We're supposed to be telling people that God has already paid for your sins. You're reconciled to God. It's a done deal. Will you receive it? Will you accept it? Or are you going to insist on paying your own account? Are you going to insist on somehow or another feeling like you've got to pay for this? Or are you going to accept the good news that Jesus died for you and it's a free gift? That usually goes over about like that. Most of you are just sitting there thinking about this is different than anything I've ever heard. But this is what scripture says. Man, I've used a lot of scripture this morning. God has reconciled you unto himself by not imputing your trespasses unto you. He imputed them to Jesus. He put all of his wrath upon Jesus so that he's not mad at you anymore. If you could understand that, that's the difference between the old covenant, which did impute your sins unto you, and the new covenant, which imputed your sins unto Jesus. And they are incompatible. It's not sins being imputed to Jesus and to you. You can't share this responsibility. 
Jesus either bore it for you or he didn't bear it for you. But it can't be him bearing a little bit of it and you've got to accept some of it. This is what Jesus was referring to when he says you can't take a new garment and I mean an old garment and put a new patch on it because when you wash wash it, it will shrink and it'll tear. You can't put new wine into an old wineskin because when it ferments, it'll break the bottles. What he was talking about wasn't how to protect your wine and how to mend your garments. He was talking about you can't take the New Testament realities and fit them into the Old Testament law. They're incompatible. They don't fit. There's a new way of relating to God under the new covenant with a new commandment. And we have to get to where we base everything on what Jesus did for us and who we are in the spirit and not relate to God in our flesh. And yet it's amazing how most of us, it's just like there's a default switch that we immediately go back to how we've acted and think God is going to move in our life proportional to our holiness. That is not true. Look over in Hebrews chapter 12. Here's a passage of scripture that is often used to say that you've got to be holy to have God move in your life. And it's not talking about a spirit holiness, a holiness that was received by salvation through faith in Jesus, but rather talking about your own holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about chastisement from the Lord, which I believe that there is chastisement, but it's not sickness. It's not disease. It's not poverty. It's not God killing your child, making your child be born with Down syndrome. That's not chastisement. The Bible says that the word of God is quick and powerful. And it's the thing that divides. And it says over in first Timothy chapter three, verse 16, I believe that the word is all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. The word of God is how he chastens us. It was with the word. There's a right and a wrong way to chasten your children. You don't hit them with a board. You don't put cancer on them to teach you something, teach them something. There's a right way to correct your children. God gave you extra padding on your bottom for a reason. And so in the natural, we understand this. You don't hit your kids with something. You don't shoot them. You don't stab them to teach them something. There's a right and a wrong way to correct. Likewise, God doesn't hit you with sickness and disease and cause tragedy in your life. He uses his word to correct you and the word will make you perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You don't have to have plan B or plan C. The word of God is enough to make you perfect. Somebody said, but they aren't studying the word. They don't listen to the word. Well, then you can learn by hard knocks. You can go out there and let life beat you up and you can learn. But I tell you, there's a better way. Better way is to go to the word of God and the word of God will make you perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so here in Hebrews chapter 12, it says in verse 11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore lift up the, the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it rather be healed. This isn't actually talking about walking in a straight line. This is talking about symbolically 
uh, metaphorically, it's talking about that you're supposed to live a godly life so that people who are watching you and are trying to find out about God and see God, many of them can't see God because he's invisible. You're the only expression of God they're ever going to see. So you need to walk a holy life is what he's talking about so that other people, rather than the lame being turned out of the way, they could be healed by seeing your example. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse uh, 14, he says, follow peace with all man and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And people take this verse totally out of its context. And they say that you've got to be holy or you'll never see the Lord. God will never, you'll never approach unto God. You'll never have God do anything in your life unless that you're holy. Take it in its context. It's talking about chastisement and it says, live a godly life so that people who are watching you can follow the Lord, can be brought to the Lord. And then in the midst of this, he says, uh, follow peace with all man and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. This isn't talking about you seeing the Lord because you've been holy and you therefore deserve seeing the Lord. This is talking about if you don't live holy, how is anybody ever going to see the Lord in your life? This isn't talking about that you've got to be holy before you can see the Lord. It's talking about you got to live holy or other people won't be able to see God in you. They won't ever learn anything from you. And the next verse again puts this back in its context. It says, looking diligently, lest any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, etc." And it's talking about just live holy, walk right so that the lame, instead of being turned aside, it'll be healed because they'll see the power of God in you. Live holy. Otherwise, how is anybody going to see the Lord in your life? I tell you, we have had scripture just so twisted to fit a paradigm that we already have that God is this angry God that every time you mess up, God's not going to answer your prayer. And that's the way it was in the Old Testament. I intended to get into some different things this morning, but you know, praise God, I'll get into them tonight. I'm not through. I'll just cover it later. But I'm going to explain to you about why the Old Testament law was given and why God did it this way. But the Old Testament law made people sin conscious. It imputed sin unto you. It made you so condemned and so guilty. And that was never God's perfect will. That's the reason he waited for 2,000 years after man sinned before he gave the law because it wasn't a perfect system. As we read last night in Hebrews chapter 8, he found fault with the law. It never was God's best, but mankind had become so corrupted and so vile and so condemned that if God didn't do something to restrain the amount of sin, there wouldn't have been a virgin left on the earth for Jesus to have been born through. Sin was becoming so pervasive that the entire plan of God for redeeming mankind by grace was at risk. And God had to do something to literally scare the devil out of us. To make man turn from sin because sin was destroying the human race. So God gave the law not to help you. It helped in the sense that it took away your deception and showed you how guilty you were, but it made you condemned. It made you guilty. It made you run from God instead of to God. But it showed you that all of your self-righteousness and all of the goodness that you were trusting in was as filthy rags compared to God's standard. And it brought you to the end of yourself so that all you could do was look up and say, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. 
That's the purpose of the law. And if you use it for that purpose to show people their need for God and bring them to a place of salvation, then the law is good. But when it's bad is when after a person comes to the Lord and receives Jesus, and now they've got a new covenant and new promises, you put them back under the old covenant with the 10 commandments that is still showing them how ungodly and how sinful they were. God never intended that. It was not intended for that. And sad to say the church has been the number one promoter of the Old Testament law and legalism and God's wrath and judgment and punishment and rejection if you don't do everything right. And it shouldn't be. They're preaching the wrong message. They're preaching from the wrong side of the cross. You know, we've got a pastor that went to our Bible school in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they sent a testimony to me. And this man has only been in school for, I don't know, six, seven months. And it has just revolutionized his life. It's revolutionized his whole ministry. And here's the way he phrased it. He says, I found out I was preaching from the wrong side of the cross. I was preaching the Old Testament law instead of the New Testament grace. And man, I think that's just a tremendous way of saying it. And this is basically what's happening to most of our churches is that they are preaching the wrath and the judgment and the conditional acceptance of God and conditional promises. You do this, this, and this, and then I'll do this. But in the new covenant, Jesus meant all of the conditions. Jesus has already done everything. And the only way you can ever be reconciled unto God, be friendly and really enter into the relationship is get out of this old covenant mentality and into the new covenant where you base everything on Jesus. God loves me because I'm in Jesus. God loves me because he is love, not because I am lovely. When you pray and say in the name of Jesus, you're saying, Father, because of what Jesus has done, completely separate from what I've done, completely separate from my own worthiness, my own goodness. I'm not basing this on the fact that I've been going to church or praying or doing anything. Just because of Jesus, in Jesus' name, I am healed. In Jesus' name, I am blessed. That's what praying in the name of Jesus is. It's basing your request upon what Jesus did for you. And yet the average person will say in the name of Jesus and then recite, God, I've been doing this, this, and this. Now will you move in my life? That's taking the name of Jesus in vain. That's terrible. And yet this is what religion has taught us to do. And we have become sin conscious because we're under an old covenant And that is not what God intended. Like I said, I really wanted to go somewhere else this morning, but I just said all these things in getting there. Amen. (laughs) So uh, I'll really continue with this tonight and share what I was wanting to do. But man, there is so much in the word about this. It's hard to put it concisely. And yet it's amazing. Religion has just missed this. I'd say that one of the most common comments that we get is people say, I've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever, and I've never heard this. This is contrary to everything I've ever been taught. Very few people are taught the new covenant. 
Romans 1.16 says, it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. And the word gospel here has become a religious cliche, but it is talking about what we're talking about here. The new covenant, the fact that it's by grace and not by performance. That's what gives you power in your Christian life. If you know that God can heal, but you have no power to receive that healing, it's because you're lacking in the gospel. You're living under an old covenant instead of a new covenant. You're letting Satan condemn you because of some failure in yourself instead of standing strong in what Jesus has done and getting it by grace through faith. You may know that it's God's will to prosper you and you may do these things, but most people confess the word and do these things thinking this is going to make God move. See, that's not the gospel. You think that somehow or another you have pull with God and your holiness affects God. That's not true. It's only your faith, your acceptance or rejection of Jesus. And whether you are standing strong in what Jesus did for you instead of what you are doing. The only thing that Satan can condemn you over is you. And if you get into the spirit that is now born again and has been changed, there is no condemnation to you when you're in the spirit and not standing in your flesh. If there's no reason for you to have any condemnation, you shouldn't even have a sin consciousness. But if you are in Christ, because God has taken care of all of them, past, present, and even sins you haven't committed yet have already been paid for. If I can talk fast enough, I'm going to deal with that either in the night or tomorrow morning. Your sins are all paid for. You shouldn't have a sin consciousness. And somebody's thinking, oh man, the things you're saying are just turn people loose to go live in sin. You know what? If you could see yourself totally forgiven, cleansed, pure, And if you could ever get hold of this in the spirit, you would reproduce as a man thinks in his heart. That's three. That's the way that he is. If you could see yourself totally forgiven and cleansed, you would start living holier accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. Amen. The reason most people live in sin is because they see themselves as I'm an old sinner saved by grace. And so they just give token resistance. And if the temptation continues, well, after all, that's who I am. I'm just an old sinner. This is who I am. So they go act like it. If you could ever see yourself as totally forgiven and see how clean and pure and holy you are in the spirit, it would reproduce itself in your physical body. You would wind up living holy. You know, I'm glad God called me to preach this message because it takes away some people's criticism against grace teaching. Some people say, well, the reason you preach grace is so that you can just go out and live in sin and you can be a drunk and you can go commit adultery and you can go do this. And it's just a way of you justifying your lifestyle. You can't say that about me. I live holier than most of you. This did not cause me to go live in sin. It says in Titus chapter two, I believe it's verse 12, that the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously in this present world. If you truly understand grace and don't use it as an excuse to go live in sin, but if you understood how much God loved you independent of your performance 
and how he got there by putting all of your sin upon Jesus. If you truly get a revelation of that, it will cause you to live a holy life. You will live holy, 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 but not in order to please God, but as a result of finding out how Jesus has already pleased God. You'll live holy as a byproduct. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son and thank you for condemning sin in the flesh of your son. Thank you for forsaking your son so that we would never be forsaken. Thank you for imputing our sins unto Jesus so that we would never have our sins imputed unto us. Father, thank you for the great salvation. And I'm just praying by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would help people here today to understand this and get out of this condemnation mindset and out of this legalistic thing where we've got to do all of these things to earn your favor. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these words and set people free from this, that we would begin to experience the new covenant the power that's in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come and touch our hearts, to change our thinking, to take the traditions and the doctrines of men that make the word of no effect and get those things out of us. Thank you, Father. We desire revelation from the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. There's a scripture in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, where Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus and they just couldn't understand. And it says, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And I'm praying that today. I believe that's quickened to me by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is touching people's understanding so that you can understand this new covenant, that you can see the hope of our calling understand the greatness of this fact that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Father, we pray for this revelation to come and I thank you that you are performing miracles in people's lives and that this word is going to burn on the inside of us until it burns up all of that traditions and doctrines of men. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, we agree. We receive it. We welcome it and we receive this ministry of your Holy Spirit in this place today. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Father. You know, there may be some of you here today that maybe you've understood for the first time what really being a Christian is. It's not trying to change your life and be holy and all of these things. That comes as a byproduct once you already obtain relationship with God. But a true Christian is one that just puts their faith in what Jesus did for them. And we've got millions and millions of people who call themselves Christians who their faith isn't in God. They're just trying to live by the Christian standard, the Christian rules of appeasing God. But in a sense, they're no different than a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu. 
They just have a Christian set of values that they are trying to do something to make themselves worthy in the sight of God. The thing that truly separates from Christianity from every other religion of the world is not our standard of holiness. Did you know that Muslims have a standard of holiness that if you steal, they cut your hand off? And they're very strict. It's not our standard of holiness that makes Christians different. The only thing that's different, the number one thing that's different about Christianity is we have a savior. No other religion on the face of the earth has this concept of a savior. In every other religion of the world, you have to be your own savior. You have to earn God's favor by you performing and doing this and wearing a robe and shaving your head and begging or doing whatever it is. But in true Christianity, we have a savior who came and took our sins. They were imputed unto him and he suffered. And so all you've got to do is accept him and put your faith in him. And then you get in based on what he did for you, not based on your performance. Well, that's powerful. And sad to say, most Christians don't have that concept. They're just trying. They still have the same mindset as a Hindu, a Buddhist, anybody trying to be good enough, thinking that their good has to outweigh their bad. And maybe some of you in here have been confused by that. And today you've heard the gospel for the first time that regardless of what you've done or haven't done, Jesus paid for all of your sins and you could just receive salvation as a gift. You receive it by making Jesus your own personal Lord. And if you will do that and do more than just say the word, you have to mean it, that I'm making you my Lord. I turn my life over to you. You can't do it perfectly, but you have to be willing to give him that kind of control of your life and you trust him to that degree. When you do that, then you become a new person on the inside and holiness becomes a fruit and not a root of salvation. It's a byproduct of having a relationship with God, not the way to having a relationship with God. If you've never done that today, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord. And then every person who's born again also needs the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, don't go tell anybody this tremendous news about Jesus being raised from the dead and the gospel. Don't tell anybody until you receive power from on high when you receive the Holy Spirit. And when they received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, verse four, it says they spoke with tongues as the spirit gave them the utterance. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you get these gifts, not only speaking in tongues, but that's one of the visible ones, one of the very first ones. And you get this ability to speak in a language that you didn't learn with your mind. It comes out of your spirit and you bypass all of the doubt and the unbelief that's in your mind. And you talk straight from this born again spirit and are able to communicate with God. It is powerful. If you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, you need to receive that. And there may be people here, I said this last night, but there's people that, you know, came to this meeting not realizing I'm one of those that speak in tongues because I don't, you know, act like the typical Pentecostal and scream and shout and say glory to God. And so because of it, some of you didn't realize I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I am. And I tell you, you need this gift of speaking in tongues. And there's many of you that like 
thing. You, you like some of the things that I testify about how God raised my son from the dead after being dead for five hours. He was raised from the dead with no brain damage, no more than before. Amen. And you hear testimonies about miracles that are happening and good things that are happening and you like the fruit, but you're going to reject the root and say, I don't want this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I'm telling you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually transformed my life. And any good thing that has happened in my life is a result of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. So I don't care what you've been taught about it. I'm telling you, it's real. And it works. And it's something that you need. If you don't speak in tongues, you need to receive speaking in tongues. You need to receive this power from the Holy Spirit. Is there anybody here today who would say, I need one or both of those. Either I need to receive Jesus as my Lord and or I need to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand so I can pray with you. Here's some right here in the middle. Others, raise your hand if that's you. Praise God, we got hands all over the place. We had, I don't even know how many last night, but I'm, how many? 120 people came forward last night to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. You know what? That's the same number that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. And look what they did. can see another Pentecost happen right here. If you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat, come forward, and we want to pray with you and help you to receive right here. Come forward and let us pray with you and help you to receive. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I believe this is going to change your life. I got born again when I was eight years old, and it was a genuine conversion. I was made fun of the next day in the third grade because they could tell I'd changed. So I was truly born again, but you know what? I was 18 when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and my life changed more outwardly through the baptism of the Holy Spirit than it did through being born again. I'm not saying that it's more important. You've got to be born again first, but I'm saying as far as the outward manifestation, this is the most life-transforming thing you will ever experience. I believe that you are going to become stronger than horseradish through receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is going to change your life. Amen? Praise God. Isn't this awesome? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All right, before I can pray with you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to be born again. You have to know that Jesus is your Lord. The Bible says Jesus is the one who gives the baptism. So you have to receive the giver before you receive the gift. Is there anybody up here who's not certain that you've made Jesus your personal Lord? We need to pray with you first and help you to receive Jesus and make sure that you're born again. Is there anybody, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand so I can see who you are and pray with you and help you to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. Anybody? Here's one right here. Anybody else? Anybody down here? Are you sure? 
I've already talked about this quite a bit today, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But you can't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit until you receive Jesus as your personal Savior. So here's another one. So here's two. Anybody else? Here's another one right down here. You know, you may not be sure. You may think, well, I hope I've received Jesus as my Savior. The Bible says that when you get born again, you have a witness in yourself, and you know that you have passed from death unto life. If this isn't something that you are absolutely certain of, if you're confident, you need to pray. Right here's another one. Here's a couple of more down here. Anybody else? Here's another one. You need to make sure this is life and death. Here's another one right here. Anybody else? Man, this is great. So there's about six or seven of you. I'm going to pray with you first. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. He's already paid for everything. He's already died for your sins. It's just a matter of will you make him your Lord? And you have to do more than just mouth the words. You have to be a commitment. You can't live perfectly. You can't never live without a sin, but you have to be willing to turn your life over and to make him the Lord of your life. So if y'all are ready to do that, you can be born again by simply praying a real simple prayer. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to ask everybody here to repeat this prayer after me so that they won't feel like we're just listening to them. And if you will say these words and mean it from your heart, you'll be born again. Okay? Just say this. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive, that you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven right now in Jesus' name. Amen. You believe that? Awesome. Awesome. 